Hello, my fellow Bitcoiners, meet the status credit card. Earn unlimited 2% cash back or Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. With no annual fee, no foreign transaction fees, and no fees to buy Bitcoin at the market rate. This card comes with status money's premium benefits to help you manage your money, including a net worth and spending tracker, peer comparisons, and the option to video chat with a financial coach. Download the Status Money app or visit statusmoney.com slash card. Get the status credit card, go to statusmoney.com forward slash card. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Welcome back to another episode of Cosmic Bitcoiners. I'm your host, CK, speaking from the Bitcoin Magazine account this week. We got our man, Spencer, my co-host, yo, yo. and our guest, Aaron Segal at Blue D Magister on stage. Thank you, everyone, for joining. I want to tell you guys about Cosmic Bitcoin. I want to tell you guys about Bitcoin Magazine. Cosmic Bitcoin is a weekly Twitter spaces at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern every single week here on Bitcoin Magazine. We also republish it as a podcast on the Bitcoin Magazine podcast feed, so go check that out. We sit down with the biggest brain thinkers in the space. We talk about the big ideas, the ideas around hyper-Bitcoinization, around the energy and informational singularity that bitcoin is and we try to get as cosmic as possible like i said i'm your host ck uh and uh, it's all about the big ideas here on cosmic bitcoin i'm super honored to have aaron seagal one of my favorite writers and thinkers in the space he's written my number one favorite bitcoin article bitcoin information theory which we're going to dive into at length on this podcast but he's written a lot of other amazing stuff and you know want to reintroduce you all to aaron so, Aaron, I'll pass it over to you for maybe a brief introduction. Thanks, TK. Yeah, I appreciate that. Hey, everyone. Hopefully, you all can hear me pretty well here. So, yeah, quick introduction just by way of my background. I run a trading risk management and macro, basically kind of top-down macro strategy at a multi-strat hedge fund in the kind of traditional finance space. You know, we transact mostly in, in credit and things of that nature, but I've been a hedge fund manager for nearly 20 years. I've been in the hedge fund industry for nearly 20 years, and I've been kind of a portfolio manager for the last six or seven of those years. So as you can probably imagine, if you're listening, that 
my lens to which I kind of tend to approach Bitcoin is first and foremost kind of from a, you know, a macroeconomic standpoint. But interestingly, this article is much more kind of philosophical. You know, the article that we're kind of going to dive into, I think today was a little bit more of an inspirational piece that kind of just came to me after I'd read a few things more on the philosophical and kind of more in, even in the theoretical physics side of things that seem to kind of coalesce into one overarching concept that from my perspective really tied together at least for me why bitcoin was such a revolutionary innovation and why it is so important and i think we can you know one way we can go about this and ck and i have talked about this in the past spencer it's good to chat with you as well finally but but we you know some of the things we've talked about of course we can go over again but there's also, I think the last time we talked about this was, it was close to when the article came out, I think way back in like April or May of 2021. And uh, obviously a lot has transpired since then, both in you know the Bitcoin space as well as just the world geopolitically, macroeconomically, and so on and so forth. So I think in some ways th this, uh, this article is actually more apropos and more timely now than even it was back then, given the inflation dynamic that we're currently kind of all enthralled with. So yeah, I'm happy to bring well, this down and, however you want, CK. I mean, the, yeah, we, I think we can dive into a lot of your different work. Again, I think I tease Bitcoin information theory, but speaking of articles that became very timely, you know, you wrote an article about, about the inflation rhetoric in 2021 and how a lot of the inflation rhetoric was not super accurate, but Bitcoiners were kind of leaning on it. And that was an article that really proved to be kind of ahead of its time as well. So I think that there's a lot to kind of dive into. But, you know, before we do, you know, kind of get into each individual piece, I guess I'm trying, I would like to hear a little bit more about, you know, how did you discover Bitcoin? And then what elements of your kind of like priming allowed you to kind of see the world so differently with Bitcoin in it? Well, I guess long story short is, I guess I first kind of was looking at Bitcoin back in 2017 and I was skeptical like so many other people. And the skepticism arose in hindsight from ignorance and really a lack of willingness to dive deep into it. I kind of just assumed that it could be something that the government would shut down if and when it got big enough. You know, I had a couple of intelligent friends who tried to explain differently to me. But back then, there there weren't a lot of great voices and the narrative was mixed and it was going through that kind of, an, an, you know, prior bubble phase as well. So I kind of, as a trader, you know, being my background, I kind of just was intrigued by the volatility, was intrigued by, you know, the price fluctuations and that piqued my interest, but then I, I didn't really dive deep. I started to dive deep in 2019 and then much more in, in 2020 as well. And obviously the confluence of all of the events around COVID were a catalyst, but I had already been pretty big investor in gold and I understand stood gold and I was an astute kind of reader of monetary history over the last two, 300 years. And then I started looking more into kind of the anthropological background of money and kind of the deeper antiquity, you know, type of history that of different monies that have kind of, you know, percolated over the years and risen and fallen. And I think from that lens, just looking at it from a really kind of super macro kind of lens is where I was able to kind of see where we were within kind of a bigger debt cycle 
some of Ray Dalio's work on his in his principles and his theories on the macro debt cycle were pretty influential with me early on as well, I would say. Jeff Booth also, you know, I, I had, it's funny because I came from such a traditional finance background and, you know, Keynesian and kind of monetary, you know, macroeconomics were the way I studied, you know, back way, way back in university. And then and it's basically embedded in my field. And so I really struggled for so long, like a lot of people to really understand why inflation wasn't appearing within the data, within the actual data, whereas it was appearing within financial assets and all sorts of other kind of circum, you know, it was kind of circumnavigating some of the traditional ways in which historically we think of inflation. And I think Jeff Booth's, his book also helped kind of get a better sense as to why it got me really thinking for the first time why we even need inflation. Like, why is it a preconceived a priori assumption that a system requires some level of inflation to be healthy and that deflation that, you know, I arose in my career during this deflationary scare of the great financial crisis. And everyone assumed that deflation was this horrendous thing. And you almost just took that for granted. It was, again, it was a priori and no one stopped to think why. And so I, I really applaud Jeff Booth for being an outsider. Um, you know, I do think sometimes you need the outsider's mind, a distant eye to to see some of these things that are staring at us in broad daylight. So I think those were kind of the early things. And then I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole after that and really just kind of got deep in the weeds. I very quickly, for example, came to be very skeptical of the whole DeFi industry around Ethereum. A lot of my peers within in Wall Street were really getting excited about that because, you know, the technology, quote unquote, that everybody gets excited about, it's like the new you know, the new internet era, the new, the new kind of hot, shiny object. And I think a lot of those people who didn't dive deep enough and didn't have that base understanding were easily swayed by a lot of fancy terminology. And I think it, it took a skeptical mind to kind of see through all that. So yeah, that, uh, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's essentially how my journey evolved. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Aaron. Really interesting stuff. And I think something that's kind of caught my eye that you mentioned is kind of needing to be an outsider to kind of grapple with Bitcoin. It is certainly not in vogue to be a Bitcoin fan in the mainstream. And I would just be curious, like how that has been, you know, working in traditional financial markets around people that presumably have, you know, a Keynesian or monetarist background and what that's like kind of finding Bitcoin and then, you know, having being in this environment where I would assume it's generally not a, a widely accepted view as a solution. The short answer is frustrating. You know, again, a lot of the people who I talk to in my industry, and I've had the honor and privilege to speak to some really bright minds, people who've done this for a very long time, and who are kind of the top of their class as investors. And as I think as anyone who's been involved in Bitcoin long enough has seen, we all see the 
you know, the headlines and the sound bites of some of these big investors throughout, you know, years, some of, and a lot of people in academia. Now, I don't traffic as much in the academia circles, so I tend, and those te people tend to be horrible investors anyway. You know, one person I think would be interesting to talk about today is actually Peter Zihan, because he's, you know, a very, I guess he's a pseudo-academic. He used to work for, for a consultant, you know, global macro consultant firm that a lot of people in my industry actually subscribe to and use their services. I think he's a genius in his niche. But when he starts talking about monetary theory, monetary policy, I read his entire book. I took copious notes. I have pages and pages of notes of his book. I highly recommend it, by the way. But when he starts talking about money, I just want to throw up because it's just so misguided and so bad. And he was just on Joe Rogan for anyone who wasn't aware. You know, he's on, you know, he's doing his kind of world press tour for his book. The end of the world is just the beginning, I believe is what it's called. And I agree with mo most of the premises, but I disagree with his conclusion. And if you were an investor trying to take his information and filter it down to, okay, what is actionable in this? I mean, because that's ultimately how investors try to boil things down. They try to be, think of things objectively. If you get married to your trade, so to speak, it's, it, that kills you, right? You have to always have an objective lens or do your best to do so, which is impossible. But I think, I think so many, the reason I'm using him as an example to answer your question, Spencer, is because I think so many people who are brilliant, such as such that he is, still land just so abhorrently in the wrong side of the conclusion to to what bitcoin is because they i well there's two classes of people and i think a lot of people have talked about this there's one class that's like i am so smart that i don't need to actually look into this i can give it a, a you know a, a circumspect tertiary kind of glance and understand it i get it okay it's digital gold blah 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 okay enough said it's not going to work and here's why because i'm so smart and I know all these other things. And so I can deduce that conclusion without having to spend thousands and thousands of hours. So there's that type of ignorance. And then there's just the, the people who are deep in finance who just see bubble, who just see anything that's a bubble and have a skeptical lens, who want to be a contrarian all the time. And I can understand that. You know, I can actually understand that lens a lot more than the form of ignorance because Bitcoin does, as we all know, evolve in a kind of helix form of bubbles. It rises, it crashes, but it's kind of constantly building anti-fragility throughout that process. And, it, and that's just the stage of evolution. Like bubbles are not a bad thing. Bubbles attract capital needed to scale. New the internet wouldn't exist in its current form without some form of a bubble, right? You know, the auto industry bubble wouldn't have, you know, enabled the assembly line in certain industrial technologies to scale without a bubble. I mean, you can go throughout history. So, but the bubble that people love to compare it to, of course, is, the, is just the ridiculous bubbles, the tulip manias of the world. And that's where a Bitcoiner would come and say, well, that's crypto, you know, or that's, you know, that's NFTs or that's, you know, this aspect of the digital asset space. But there's a lack of differentiation. And then that gets back to the ignorance perspective. So I have talked to a few people who have come from a very, you know, who've come from one of those lenses who have flipped over, but it's, I think it's harder in my industry because people just have so much confidence in their pre-existing beliefs. Gotcha. Yeah. Really great explanation there. And I guess now we'll kind of just transition into like what you think, you know, people are missing about Bitcoin. Like when I read your article, Bitcoin Information Theory, and listened to you and CK talk about it before, I really felt like 
like, wow, like I've hit or at least close to hit the bottom of the rabbit hole. And it feels like this is like the core argument, at least for me, that's really resonated with my understanding of Bitcoin as a superior information dissemination technology. And so I would just from a high level would be curious for you to just you know, give our audience an understanding of what you're getting at with Bitcoin information theory. And then maybe further on, we can, you know, juxtapose that to kind of the fiat monetary system as it relates to entropic money. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think to have this conversation, we have to make a couple of quick definitions. So entropy is kind of the key concept here. And, you know, the way this came about was kind of a marriage of a couple different fields. And I'm by no means an expert in any of these fields. Obviously, as I've mentioned, my background is economics, but I think this is a really helpful lens. Like, all, you know, any, anything when you get abstract, I'm an abstract thinker, and I need to think of the world in terms of analogies and metaphors. And I think this sets the stage for a really great way to kind of come at it. So you marry kind of the second law of thermodynamics. So the first law is that energy can either be created nor destroyed, as we all maybe remember from our early physics classes. And then the second law is basically hot things tend to get cold. I mean, that's the dumbed down way of explaining it, unless you do something to stop them. Basically, the entire universe is hardwired to head towards entropy. I mean, this is a discovery that is really so firm. There's a great quote by a famous astrophysicist Arthur Eddington, and he stated, if your theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There's nothing for it but the collapse into deepest humiliation. So, I mean, this is an invaluable kind of law of nature. And it struck me early on that there was something to the way the world worked. I mean, essentially all human effort and work and productivity is taking energy turning it into greater entropy, you're releasing more energy, you have organic matter buried deep under the soil of the earth, we pull it out, we do work with it, that energy through combustion, through thermodynamics gets transferred into more disorder, more uniformity, after being in an ordered state. And as a result, we create things from that. We fight against the entropy of the universe with our own innovation, with our own desire to build towards homeostasis. And we can get to that in a minute. But and I know I'm getting like super cosmic here, and I guess this is the place to do it. But absolutely. <laughs> so, so, okay, so you have the second law of thermodynamics. Okay. And then what kind of got me to have this aha moment was I was nerding out over some book written by a guy named Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon, for people who are into computer science, might know him as the um, grandfather of information theory. And basically, he married kind of information with thermodynamic entropy, with kind of your classical P of things, of the physical world. And he kind of married that a little bit with the evolving digital world. And the quote that really stuck out to me in one of his works that I was reading was, and I'll quote, if information equals resolved uncertainty, Entropy must be the uncertainty needing resolving. So if you break that down, it kind of gives you a quick formula. So information is resolved uncertainty. Uncertainty equals entropy. Information is reduced entropy. And the reason that was really interesting to me was because at its most deep level, a sound money is just, is just perfect transmission with the highest of fidelities of information. 
It's a community. It's a technology of communication. That's what money is meant to be. It's meant to transfer value, communicate value at scale to allow humanity to specialize, to transfer their productivity, to save their productivity, and to basically hold all of that information, all of that work in a form that is, that has no you know, friction and has, you know, the, the perfect amount of transmission of that energy. So, so that's kind of where the theory kind of, you know, began. And the actual equation, which we can break down, and it's a little hard, you know, for anyone who's kind of interested, because this is a little bit hard to just, I think, to fully internalize, you know, from an audio perspective. I think some people, myself included, are visual learners, so sometimes like seeing the formula laid out. But again, I wouldn't overly focus on the formula itself. It's more of a conceptual formula to help you think about money and why you need to sound money and why inflation is so pernicious and why inflation is so dangerous in an insidious kind of way. So, but I'll try my best here. So thermodynamic entropy we've defined. Okay. Now, if you raise that to the power of what I called in my article X, X being human innovation, which is productivity, because essentially what we do is we have the ability to do work, but then we innovate with tools and technology that we create to magnify that work. So that's why you raise it to, the, to that power, because it can scale exponentially. Technology, as we know, can scale exponentially. But the, and then, so if you do that, you have thermo, thermodynamic entropy to the power of human innovation equals the inverse of informational entropy, meaning the more thermo, thermodynamic entropy we create, to the power of our innovative capabilities, the more information we are creating, which is negative entropy. You know, we're creating order out of disorder, essentially. And in a perfect world, that's how humanity progresses, right? Like we use the tools, we use resources, and we use our ingenuity, and we're able to create information and order out of that chaos. And the problem is when you have a money that is part of that is part of that human innovation formula. It's part of that quote unquote letter X, that power function. Okay. So you need to include money in that power function. So then you have human innovation minus what I referred to as ME, which is monetary entropy. And monetary entropy, just to keep it simple, we'll call it as just kind of some long-term level of inflation. Now we can all sit here and argue about how do you measure inflation. And that's a whole different rabbit hole of a conversation to go down. But for all intents and purposes, let's just say, you know, we're talking something, you know, CPI. And let's say it's even just 2%, you know, that old 2% that the Fed is tar has targeted for the last 40 years. And, you know, we've essentially oscillated at least in the last 20 years and certainly in the last 10, even below 1% up until, up until around 2019. So if you subtract that, as long as that's a positive number, as long as there's some form of monetary inflation, then that will always be detracting from the amount of inf reduced informational entropy that you're, that you're outputting from all of that work, from all of that ingenuity, from all of that usage of thermodynamic entropy, you're going to have leakages. You know, a great way of thinking about this, actually, I think Michael Saylor, you know, and he's got an engineering background, 
And I know people have different opinions about Michael Saylor, but he's really good abstract thinker as well. And he, and I forget who I was listening to where he made this comparison, but he compared Bitcoin and the difficulty adjustment and all of the various aspects of how Bitcoin works from an engineering perspective. I mean, this is where you can also tie this in from physics. We just talked physics. We just talked computer science. We're talking macroeconomics. And now we can talk a little bit of engineering here, which is he called it an Bitcoin and an adaptive control system. An adaptive control system has three, three attributes. It has a negative feedback metric that allows you to be aware when something is out of whack, when the system is becoming imbalanced. There's the ability to receive that information. That would be something, for example, I mean, there's a lot of things about Bitcoin that create negative feedback, which is a positive thing, by the way. So, you know, it sounds negative, but it's actually a positive thing because it allows you to adjust. It allows you. So we all know the difficulty adjustment is a perfect example of that. The second attribute that an adaptive control system has is a variable to control. Um, it, you need to have something that everybody agrees on. You know, what are you trying to control, right? If everybody has a different definition of what they're trying to control, then it's not really a functional system. So that's where the actual ledger in, in the case of Bitcoin comes in. It's a ledger that essentially is just signatures that we all agree on. And then also very importantly, the third attribute is it needs to have a low error rate. If you want to have a system to have long-term integrity, you can't have errors. You can't have, from an engineering perspective, they would call it thermodynamic loss. This gets us back to our kind of overarching theme of thermodynamics. You know, imagine a situation where you have a combustion engine and it works really well, except it leaks 2% of its oil input, of its gasoline input every hour. You know, that's your inflation rate, right? Well, over time, that 2% compounds and eventually you have an empty tank, you know? So something that looks really good at first that has even just a small error rate can have enormous consequences. So that error rate is monetary entropy in the case of Bitcoin and, or in the case of, I should say, our monetary, our current monetary system and Bitcoin is the inverse of that. So getting back to the formula, you have any monetary system that has inflation will detract from your ability to reduce entropy. But Bitcoin just gets out of the way. Bitcoin creates perfect, like I said, perfect fidelity. The monetary entropy of Bitcoin is zero. So it allows that human innovation to flourish in its fullest potential. And that's kind of Jeff Booth's thesis kind of coming out in, my, in, in what I wrote. I mean, that was kind of inspired by, by his vision about why deflationary money or non-inflationary money, to be maybe a little more accurate, is so powerful. Because even just a little inflation compounds over time. And like, you know, like with that analogy can be absolutely devastating to a system over time. That's a lot. So maybe we, that's a good place to pause and kind of try to internalize some of that. Hey, plebs. Today's podcast is brought to you by Crowd Health. Open enrollment is upon us. What if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you could invest in Bitcoin instead? With Crowd Health, you can put aside money for health expenses in your own account and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up, you get the upside, not the big insurance companies. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. Choose your doctors and hold 75% of the funds in Bitcoin. If a large expense comes up, 
CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Stop supporting the broken health insurance system with your hard-earned capital. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin right now through the end of the year. You can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. That's CrowdHealthBTC.com, promo code BTCMAG. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It is a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. It's obviously a pretty complex subject, but I think you do a great job of breaking it down into its most simple components. But especially the, the thing for me that really clicked was this idea of the error rate. Like it just makes sense that if you're trying to coordinate a system and you have say 2% drift over time, you're going to end up with unintended consequences as the system comes out of whack. And there's a tweet pinned in the nest up there where it's Elon Musk saying that the thing we call money is just an information system for labor allocation. What actually matters is making goods and providing services. We should look at currencies from an information theory standpoint. Whichever has least error and latency will win. And to me, it's like, you know, we obviously know Elon has a bit of a confounding stance on Bitcoin. He's been, you know, a bit back and forth. But it seems to me that he understands precisely what the problem in different monies is. And I would just be curious, like, you know, if you had his ear, like, what would you say to him? Uh, like, I know it's a, obviously a big it, question, but it seems we have a solution to those problems of both error and latency with the way Bitcoin scales. Yeah, I mean, Elon is such a crazy character. It's hard to know what really he's thinking. I actually, it's funny you posted that tweet. I remember that tweet because I didn't think it got attention at the time. And it was, if I recall, unless he was a similar tweet that he also posted at a different time. I recall someone actually forwarded him my article in response to that tweet. And it was sometime during his era of where he was, you know, tweeting about Bitcoin every day and causing massive fluctuations, both up and down with his ridiculous takes. I mean, he's clearly such an intelligent person that... It's hard to imagine some of the things he said he actually believed. But again, like, I'm not going to get into some kind of psychoanalysis of Elon Musk. I guess, um, given he's got an engineering background, given we kind of just tied in so many subjects that I would imagine he has probably a firmer grasp on than I do, maybe minus kind of economics and kind of market you know, maybe an understanding of kind of market history. My guess is that if there's probably one thing that he probably was lacking in some context and perspective and maybe still is lacking, is kind of monetary history and monetary theory. Um, and why should he? Like, why would he know all that? He's busy running a bunch of tech companies. So, but I do think that might have that lack, you know, that one pillar that he was maybe lacking, maybe let him to go astray a little bit and kind of go off the deep end. But again, I mean, I'm not here. I'm not going to I'm not going to speculate about that. But yeah, I mean, that tweet was interesting because I think it hit on a lot of the kind of ideas that we're sitting here talking about right now. Aaron, so 
for me, the minute I read this article, I was like very intrigued because I think you articulated something I've been thinking, but unable to articulate really. I mean, you did it amazingly. So first of all, if you're listening to this, go to Bitcoin Magazine, go and read Bitcoin Information Theory. It is pinned up in the nest. So I think it is, it's the exact middle pin tweet. So pin number four. So go grab that and give it a read. Guy Swan read it as well. Guy Swan reads every single article Aaron writes. So that's a pretty big endorsement. But one of the reasons why this blew my mind is because one of my mental models for Bitcoin and why I'm so bullish on it is because Bitcoin is a better economic system. And therefore, if we adopt it, we will actually have exponentially better economic outcomes because it's of how bad the error rate is on fiat and how much better engineered Bitcoin is to provide good information for us to make economic decisions. So I think that not only, it's inappropriate just to divide all the world's store value wealth by 21 million, but you also have to project out what kind of productivity we'll have on a better system. And I really loved how Bitcoin information theory like kind of broke that down by, you know, discussing how monetary entropy removes the exponential improvement that comes from and the exponential productivity that comes from technological innovation. So I guess it's not really a question, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this idea of Bitcoin creating better economic outcomes and how to think through what the world will look like with Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, you said a lot of great things just there. So let's see if we can try to unpack it a little bit. So first of all, thanks so much for the kind words. That's, you know, you've always been a very generous, generous supporter of stuff I've written. So like, you know, deep thanks, CK. But I will say, you know, one simple kind of axiom to think about with any system is, especially a system that involves social action, you know, social behavior, which is really what economics boils down to, you know, if it's, whether or not you're into Austrian economics or whether you're into some of the more traditional kind of schools of thinking, they still come down to human action. I mean, that's what praxeology states is that all economic activity has to be kind of a conscious human behavioral, you know, a- action. And I've kind of nerded out over the last year, and it's been a long time since I've kind of done any of these talks with you guys. And over the last year, I, I, for various other reasons, I really kind of got down a different rabbit hole in analytical psychology and the works of, you know, the collective works of Carl Jung and things down that avenue. And that led me to some to reading about neurology and neuroscience and some of the innovations there, especially since there's some recent innovations in neuroscience that are actually kind of confirming some of these theories that are perceived as a little bit mystical of someone like Jung that were written over 100 years ago. But, you know, we're actually getting data in science that's confirming some of them. And one of the things, and the reason I'm, you'll understand where I'm going with this, but because to your point about why it's such an important system is any system that works over the long run needs to needs to run parallel to human instincts, human drives, right? I mean, that's one of the things that people refer to capitalism as being the most congruent out of all of the major systems. We'll call it fascism, communism, socialism, and capitalism, right? And capitalism seems to 
correlate best with kind of human instinct, human nature, right? And I think you do need, um, for any system, it needs to be congruent with the way that humans act. And the reason I'm bringing up all this psychology stuff is that there's a gentleman by the name of Mark Soames, who is a really well-renowned neuroscientist. He's also a psychoanalyst as well. And he did some kind of revolutionary work on what's called the hard problem of consciousness. And the hard problem of consciousness is essentially, I mean, this is a whole different rabbit hole, so I'm just going to give a very quick overview. It's like you have, why do we need to have the experience of being human? Why does there need to be some experience or some knowing of ourselves, right? So many of our actions, so many of the things that we do can be boiled down to unconscious behavior. There's even tons and tons of research that have shown that many of our behaviors and thoughts are originated before we are conscious of them. So why do we need consciousness from a kind of biological evolutionary perspective, from a physiological perspective? And long story short, I'm listening to this guy give a lecture. And if any of you are interested, he wrote a book called The Hidden Spring, but he also did a rec- lecture. You can kind of, it's like an hour long if you have the energy. You just Google Mark Soames, S-O-L-M-S, Royal Institute. He gives, you know, he's given tons of speeches, but that's probably the best, most comprehensive one, where he kind of broke down his theory to the kind of scientific community. And one of the things that really struck, you know, and confirmed kind of this, you know, this Bitcoin information theory to me after listening to it is he essentially boiled down the reason. So, you know, in in his view, consciousness arises from an, an emotional need. It's actually not coming from our prefrontal cortex. It's not coming from our higher brain perspective, but it's actually coming from our kind of lizard brain, our deep brain that's needing to make decisions to deal with an unknown outside external environment. So he actually talks a lot about entropy. He says, a living organism is different from organic matter in that it resists entropy. And he defines entropy very similar to the way I just defined it before, which is just basically dissipation of energy into uniformity. And his idea of entropy, sorry, entropy resistance or anti-entropy is what it was, what you would call in the physiological world is homeostasis. And I mentioned homeostasis at the very beginning, and I said, I'd get back to it. Homeostasis is our preferred state. So I'm hungry. You need to be aware of what hunger is in order to change that state. Otherwise, you're going to starve and die. So your preferred state is nirvana. And anytime you start to move away from that nirvana state, you become aware of it. You become conscious of it to help you manage that external environment. So why am I bringing any of this up? Like, why the hell does any of this shit matter, right? My point is that it seems to be very deeply hardwired into the human physiology, the human mind, the human consciousness, even the human unconsciousness, that entropy is a bad thing. We don't want to die. We don't want to our energy, ourselves, to just kind of, you know, devolve into uniformity. That is the act of living. That is the act of life. That is the act of thriving. And if that is the case, if homeostasis is anti-inflation, and if inflation is monetary entropy, then it, there seems to be a, an instinctive drive in humans against inflation. And I just found that so fascinating. I mean, even Freud, who is, you know, his predecessor and his mentor, he defined drive, you know, the essential human drive, which really 
informs all economic behavior, all human behavior, as the demand made upon the mind for work. In the psychological process of feeling desire towards homeostasis, when something has started to stray towards entropy, that's what gives us drive. Again, getting back to that hunger example is a very simple kind of rudimentary example of those types of emotions and those types of drives is you are driven to satiate yourself. You are driven to eat. You have a drive, you have a libido, you have, you know, all of these kind of drives. And one of those drives seems to me to be a fight against inflation, a fight against entropy. And even, you know, Jung wrote a, something that's become kind of a cult hit called the seven sermons of the dead. It's kind of like his more mystical piece within a greater work he called, he wrote called the red book. And even this speaks to that same idea that the essence of being humid is differentiation. You know, there's the great void. There's the great everything and nothingness of the universe, right? Now, this is getting a little bit, you know, maybe a little too cosmic here. But like, and if, you know, there's, this is impossible. (laughs) You know, there's people, you know, obviously this gets into some Eastern beliefs. You know, a guy who I, who's a philosopher that I've always loved, who's a great speaker to some of these ideas is Alan Watts, who was big in the 1960s and 1970s. But it also speaks very much to just kind of a, a like even a, an ancient Western tradition, which is the dialectic, which is two opposing things can coexist paradoxically, and that's okay. And the coexistence of nothingness and everythingness that is kind of the universe is essentially the background state. And humanity, the purpose of being human is to differentiate things, is to judge and to perceive and to judge the world and and to differentiate oneself. And that is the same thing. That is a drive against entropy. And so I think that's why I, I swear, like I know this can sound a little out there, but I do think, you know, there's a reason why Bitcoiners can be so passionate in some ways, because I do think some of the ideas we're talking about here, beyond all of the really concrete, real world applications that we are we've all we all spend all of our time thinking about when it comes to bitcoin is that there's an even deeper layer there's an, e- an even deeper sense of injustice to the idea of inflation to the idea of things that are adding to entropy in a system that could otherwise do the opposite do the inverse to that and so i think at the deepest level bitcoin speaks to that very fundamental human nature Wow, that was incredibly profound. And it just gives me so much to think about. And just really quickly, I think something that comes to mind is like, if you have Bitcoin that has, it's like a zero entropy informational unit. And, you know, you can think of it as like, I know Sailor said this before, but it's almost like super cooling money down to zero. And then you can send it at the speed of light. And kind of the idea behind this is like, Bitcoin almost would be this background state that is not interfering with any of our like, you know, economic motion on above that. And it seems like we can more accurately like exist within the universe if we have this background state to to operate within that is consistent and is this like, you know, vacuum state that people talk about in physics. And just another quick aside too, is I think you might be interested in is Carl Jung actually had a lengthy correspondence with the quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli. And they have some really Mm -hmm. interesting back and forth. I think people in the audience would be very interested in that as well. But it is interesting, like, I mean, there certainly is a a connection between 
understanding the hard problem of consciousness and physics. And it seems as though like we're trying to minimize our surprisal as human beings. Like we're trying to error correct in our environment. And it seems like Bitcoin somehow is able to provide this tool for us to scale that process from the individual up to N number of agents. And it's just, you know, to get cosmic, it, it really is just like such a mind blowing technology that we've kind of stumbled across. And it really just makes me so in a great way, like uncertain about what our future of humanity may be as we try to scale exponentially. Like we don't know where this is going to take us. And I think that's one of the beautiful parts is like we have so much yet to uncover. And it seems like Bitcoin is really helping us do that discovery process in the most efficient way possible. Yeah, I mean, listen, I would be full of shit if I could tell you the implications of all of this, because the implications of this are so diverse and varied that they're impossible for any of us to understand. All we can really surmise from this is that the implications are enormous and enormously positive. I mean, we can talk about some of the, I mean, there's obviously some implications that are very tangible that are more near term that we can actually talk about. And I'll give one example in a moment, just real quick for everybody, anyone who is a psychology nerd. You're absolutely right. Wolfgang Pauli was actually a patient of Jung's, and I believe his collected works, volume 12, is the analysis of Pauli's dreams. He doesn't say this in the works, but subsequent to, the, to that essay publication, it's become apparent that Pauli was the subject of that analysis. And the analysis was, it was really, yeah, it was really mystic. It was really super cosmic because they were talking about alchemy and how alchemy is kind of this ancient, you know, archetype that that humanity has latched onto. Again, getting back to some of the things we were just talking about, like the lack of subject and object and kind of trying to we're getting way off subject there. But yeah, like there's a lot of interesting, I, you know, I guess when, you know, to a hammer, everything's a nail. And once you're a Bitcoiner, you start reading everything and everything seems to s somehow come back to Bitcoin after that. And so like you can sit there and read any of these topics and somehow relate them back. And certainly Carl Jung, for me at least, has not been, has also been one of those types of experiences. But let's give like a concrete example, because like, okay, like cause we're talking super abstract here. But, you know, one implication, I think, when you start to tie in entropy, because entropy is really using physical energy. And so when you start to tie in maximizing your ability to ex extract value from that entropy, which is that kind of negative information entropy that we were talking about on the right side of the equation. It, it has a lot of implications for energy resources and scarcity. So I would think of sound money as a shock absorbent for scarcity. And what I mean by that is if, if basically you have monetary entropy, you are wasting the system's inputs. And essentially because of the nature of human activity, we are going to create scarcity in the resources that we use. That is just kind of a, a fact of nature. You know, there's a quote, I forget where it's from, but I have this in my notes. It says, entropy forms the basis of scarcity because humans cannot move energy the other way from a state of disorder to order. So just because of the nature of that second law of thermodynamics, therm sorry, I really have trouble with that word, that we are going to deal with scarcity. And why is, you know, as Bitcoiners, whenever we hear the word scarcity, we kind of our ears perk up, right? Because that's obviously a key, you know, a key attribute of Bitcoin is its scarcity, right? And the reason why that's so important when it comes to money is that if money is not permitted, it's intrinsic capacity to absorb that resource scarcity, to basically take all of that 
thermodynamic energy that we're using to create value for to be a buffer of that scarcity value, then that scarcity value, if it doesn't accrue to the money, it will accrue to the resources. And the problem with that is that resources are meant to be used. Money is meant to be a communication transmission. And as more value is being created, the money should have more value, not less value. This also gets to kind of a Jeff Boothian kind of view of the world and why kind of deflation can be so productive, right? Because it can actually increase one's purchasing power. And this is runs, this is it's so intuitive on a deep level, but it's so counterintuitive to the way our economic system functions. Because if an economic system is based off of bearer instruments, if it's based off of credit, deflation suddenly gets flipped and becomes this negative thing. You can't have a credit system and you can't have growing debt with a deflationary system or else all the creditors get destroyed and the whole system collapses. So as soon as you change the nature of money, that's where this becomes problematic. And I think you need to flip it on its head. This gets back to your first question, Spencer, is like, why do people, why do so many people in finance really struggle with this idea? Because everything in finance is based off of finance. <laughs> it's based off of debt. And I'm not saying that debt is intrinsically bad. I'm not one of those people who think that there should be no such thing as credit. But credit is there is a tool. Credit is there to serve a purpose. Credit is not equivalent. Credit does not equal money. Credit is a tool that can be applied from sound money. But anyway, so if you have monetary entropy and you have a money that's not a good shock absorbent for that resource scarcity as a result, then the value does not accrue to the money. If actually the money because of inflation is losing its value, then the value accrues to the resources. If you look at a chart of oil going back, let's not go pre-World War II because pre-World War II oil wasn't is used is commonly used for the same in industrial purposes as, that we use it for today. So it's not a good apples to apples comparison. But if you look at like 1945 to 1970, this is one of those like, you know, what the fuck happened since 1971 type of things. But this is just a very simple, obvious example. If you so if you look at the price of oil in dollar terms, non, you know, non adjusted, it went up like around 85% from 1945 to 1970 on a cumulative basis. From 1970, when the Bretton Woods system fell apart, as we all know, to present, it has gone up 4,300% in dollar terms. Now, oil, as we all know, a barrel of oil, is what makes the world go round. Yes, today still, and yes, even in those Tesla cars, you need a lot of oil to, to make <laughs> an EV battery to make the aluminum that goes into those cars, to produce the energy that goes into the grid that those cars use to recharge, et cetera, et cetera. So like we have caused this exponential increase. And one of the reasons that, that has happened is because that scarce resource has accrued most of the value of all of that monetization that has occurred since then. And that hyper monetization that has occurred since then and you can apply the same thing to other scarce assets like land, real estate values. All of these things have gone up at a pace, at a compound rate, way beyond the normal rate of inflation because they're accruing way more value. And, there's, and they've become stores of value in lieu of there being a really good other store of value. Even gold, I mean, gold, you know, has been a great protector of that. If you look at oil and gold terms over that period, it's basically flat. 
it's basically flat. So your purchasing power for a barrel of oil hasn't changed in 75 years in gold terms. The problem is you can't use gold. You can't use it as a currency and it doesn't scale in the 21st century. I mean, that's a whole different conversation, but, but it's there as an example to show you that entropy, that leakage. And when you have utility goods, things that we need to use to create more productivity in the world, you know, we need resources to, to create productivity. We need to consume energy to improve our output per unit of energy over time. But if that energy is getting more and more expensive, it becomes very hard to do so over time. And innovation is really kind of, you know, pedaling faster and faster against, you know, a steeper and steeper slope. So I think that's like, things like that are really great examples of this in kind of the real world and how this can really create kind of perverse, perverse outcomes. Yeah, and especially from an environmental perspective, I think it, it what you wrote really hit home for me is kind of this idea of monetizing these use goods and we're incentivizing the production of them and yet at the same time making them less useful for actual like economization. And something you wrote in a tweet with regards to kind of this prisoner's dilemma of money. And you talk about this dichotomy between competition and cooperation. And you said, without the proper communication of information with the shelling point removed, and without the proper incentives, there will always be enough parties willing to cheat. And I've always thought about Bitcoin in terms of this prisoner's dilemma, where now you're incentivized, you know, to be a cooperant party in this monetary system. You're not incentivized to cheat and debase the currency. And it seems like we're solving this prisoner's dilemma for the value of money at a very base level with the incentives of Bitcoin. And this can be applied to things like, like Hardin's tragedy of the commons as it relates to public or shared goods. And I would just be curious if you could riff a little bit like on kind of the maybe the hyper consumerist or in negative environmental externalities that come about from monetary entropy. Well, yeah, that's, I think you bring up a, a great point about Listen, everything involved in game theory is about asymmetric communication. You know, it's all so game theory wouldn't exist if there wasn't human interaction. Like it's purely a social science. You know, it, it's a mathematical science as well, of course, but it's math applied to social situations. And and if indeed money improves the ability to communicate, I mean, the whole per, the whole concept of a shelling point is when multiple parties are trying to coordinate um, without you know, without enough information. And there's some kind of natural point of coordination that, that that exists for various different reasons in that, you know, is termed a shelling point. And when people don't need, you know, when, and, but a shelling point only arises when there's some kind of asymmetry, when there's some kind of obstruction to that proper communication channel. And now, you know, there's going to be various reasons why that might always exist, but from a monetary perspective, if you can solve that problem, then you're creating a shelling point. And a shelling point, you know, in, in, at its base level, just creates maximum coordination. And maximum coordination creates productivity. So, yeah, you get rid of, and of course, to what you're, I think what you were implying is that when you have that asymmetry, there's going to always be an incentive to cheat for some people, right? Some people will look to take advantage of that asymmetry. And that's essentially what arbitrage is, right? Like it's you're taking advantage of some kind of mispricement, you know, mispricing. And eventually that kind of 
creates a rebalancing if that's the case but sometimes it doesn't sometimes the system again it doesn't have negative feedback and so those imbalances can just kind of perpetuate yeah in terms of kind of how this all can speak to misuse of resources i yeah i think it's, i think it's clear that when resources are accruing all of the value it creates an incentive for example to hoard those resources you know, it creates, if real estate, if land is becoming even more of a scarce store of value, if oil and other commodities become a more scarce store of value, if financial assets through hyper-financialization become a better form of storing your money, if treasuries become a better form of storing your money than currency itself, then the system won't fix itself. So like the petrodollar is a great example of this kind of closed loop system that creates lots of problems. And this might be like a conversation, this might be a conversation for another day, but you know, this gets back to what I was saying before about oil, but essentially we created a system is probably a lot of people who are into Bitcoin are aware that tied the U S dollar. I mean, essentially the dollar is pegged to a band of oil. Like when I say a band of oil, I mean, oil needs to trade within a certain range relative to the dollar for the global system to function. And we essentially said, we're going to ensure that as long as everyone transacts in dollars, as long as you buy that oil in dollars, we will ensure that oil doesn't ever fluctuate beyond that band and the system can function. So what happens then? Okay. So we become a creditor system because we can borrow at a below average cost of capital. And the reason we can do that is because all of the energy producers are recycling their excess, their net exporters, and they're accumulating dollars from their, you know, the, from their surplus trade account. And they basically refunnel all of those dollars back into dollar denominated assets like treasuries. And that suppresses domestic interest rates here in the U.S., which enables more leveraging, more debt, more consumption. And those rates would be are lower than they otherwise would be given our trade deficit, our growing trade deficit, given the you know basement of the currency relative to oil. And so we can produce debt at a, a lower cost of capital than that resource scarcity would otherwise imply. And that enables us to continue to accumulate more and more resource scarcity. And, and in a way we need to, right? Because now we have debt and we need to roll over that debt. And what's interesting about someone like Peter Zihan, who comes out and says, Bitcoin is worth nothing. It's not a currency. You can't, I mean, like he of all people should understand the system. I mean, he is like a rabid anti-China, you know, advocate. And he's an advocate that the U.S. system is going to be kind of the only system that kind of survives this coming turmoil, this coming scarcity, world of scarcity in this deglobalization that's kind of underway. And I agree with all the points about scarcity. I agree with all the points about deglobalization. But where he's wrong, in my opinion, is that he's still a fan of the system that got us into this mess of that kind of pumping of debt. I mean, one of the reasons he is so bearish on China is because of the massive amount of credit creation, the massive amount of monetary stimulus that they've basically pumped into their system for 20, 30 years. And the only reason that that's been able to persist is because there's been a growing population that can roll over that debt, a growing population of savers that 
you know, essentially if you view, for example, credit in its most deep sense as some form of, I hate using this term, but like a Ponzi scheme in the sense that as long as you're rolling it over, you're putting the liability onto some future user within that system, right? And so in that sense, you can call it a Ponzi scheme in a very loose way. Like it's not an intentional Ponzi scheme or anything of that nature, but, but as long as you're rolling debt and there's no intention of ever paying back that debt, and if debt really is our version of money, then it creates a problem once the population starts to decrease. I mean, just today, there was data that came out of China that they actually, that their population is decreasing year over year. So, and that's one of his big, that's one of his big bear theses on China and on the whole world, you know, and why you're going to have a labor shortage and things of that nature. But the point here is that because of our current system, because of this kind of petrodollar system, the world has to price their economic activity in dollars. So we need to perpetually create more and more dollars. So the entire world needs to create more debt. We need to consume more and more, getting to your point, Spencer. And the cost of capital is kind of constantly lower than it otherwise would be to rebalance the system. This gets back to negative feedback or a lack thereof in this system. And until it becomes unsustainable. And how does it become unsustainable? Well, for 40 years, we've been doing this successfully because we can export inflation to the rest of the world. We can print money without having any domestic inflation. We just export it to the rest of the world who has to absorb it. And their currencies are even worse than ours because they need to print more and more currency to, to create more dollars to purchase and transact and more expensive you know, resources as their purchasing power decreases even even worse than ours. So the dollar looks strong relative to all these other fiat currencies, but it looks weak relative to all of the resources and in actual kind of real world things that we use, like real estate, like financial assets and things of that nature. So it creates this kind of very perverse incentive that works until we start importing inflation here. And when we have inflation here, as we started to see in the last 18 to 24 months, the whole system basically starts to kind of grind to a halt. And I think we're in the very early stages of that, but that's a whole different conversation. Aaron, we definitely need to get you back on some Bitcoin Magazine content to talk through inflation, to talk through, you know, let's just call it maybe the last inning in in the dollar experiment. But we are kind of getting to the end here. I do want to give a shout out to the Bitcoin Conference, Coin Magazine, and this conversation is made possible by Bitcoin 23, May 18th through the 20th. I briefly met Aaron for the first time in person at Bitcoin 2022. He like waved at me in the distance and we were never actually able to meet up. But Coin 2023, we'll have to give it another shot. Excited to see you there, Aaron. And yeah, for all the listeners, ticket prices go up this Friday and you can save 10% off with promo code COSMIC. It's going to be COSMIC there. We're going to have a lot of big brain thinkers and ideas on display at the conference and all of Bitcoin Twitter will be there. So going to be very exciting. Aaron, you know, with the last 10 minutes here, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to kind of talk about or mention while we're on this, while we have you? Oh, man, I think we covered a lot. I think I'm burnt. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, my brain is starting to get fried. You know, one thing would be a good follow-up conversation that's also kind of related 
to all of this. It kind of takes us from the petrodollar to like the next the next system, you know, like and where Bitcoin fits into that. And it's something I've talked. There's a gentleman by the name of Zolt, Zoltan Pozar, and this is actually a good segue to, to the Bitcoin conference because I believe he's speaking at your conference, right, CK? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's It needs to be a more widely known fact, but yeah. Zoltan yeah. is going to so be there and we're working to line up some really exciting content with him and see if we can if we can orange pill him and some other folks in macro at the event. Uh, I've been trying to orange pill Zoltan for over a year now. So he and I talk a lot. He's I he's a brilliant thinker. If any of you guys can get your hands on any of his work that he's done over the last year, it's been really conceptually talk about kind of cosmic from kind of a macro geopolitical standpoint. You know, his background, he used to work at the Federal Reserve, actually, and he's he's now the kind of the chief interest rate strategist at Credit Suisse. And he puts out a lot of think pieces that get a lot of attention on Wall Street. He kind of made some waves in the Bitcoin community a year ago when he put out his first thesis called Bretton Woods 3 that kind of was trying to tie together everything that was starting to change in the world after the Russia-Ukraine war got underway. And at the very end of it, he kind of put like a little bit of a skeptical remark about Bitcoin and where Bitcoin would fit into that. I actually reached out to him. I knew him like a little bit back then. I reached out to him. I said, we need to talk. And so we ended up actually corresponding quite a bit. We talk like once a month ever since then over the last year. And we share our ideas. And I do think he hasn't said this, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I do think he's become a lot more open-minded about Bitcoin than he initially was a year ago. Let's put it that way. And so I'm very excited to hear what he has to say at the conference. I was pretty surprised, CK, actually, when I heard that he was going to be speaking there. And... um but anyway, well, the reason I bring him up is not to just, you know, do a shameless plug for you guys, but because this Bretton Woods 3 idea he has, I think, is very interesting. You know, one of the, one of the quotes that I always love that applies to so many things, and it gets, you know, it's like one of those kind of Mark Twain quotes where everybody ascribes it to, like, different people, and you never know who the original person is. But I, from my understanding is that the initial quote was from Netscape, you know, way back in the day, probably in like 1998 or something, whenever Netscape went public from their IPO roadshow, which basically talked about the whole concept of technology is just an evolution of unbundling things and then rebundling things. And I think one great way to end this conversation is on, you know, in terms of thinking about Bitcoin into the future is I do think the neg- you know, the negative, you know, cynical answer in the kind of Zoltan Pozar, Bretton Woods three view of the world is that we're in a process right now of unbundling. You know, the world is deglobalizing. We are seeing kind of we've kind of seen the peak of the tech giant monopolies and our monetary systems are going from a uni- unipolar dollar system to a multipolar system. Oil is going to be priced in different currencies, different you know, currencies are going to transact directly with one another via CBDCs and other forms of technology. He talks about this Enbridge system, which is which is a basically currency system that the Bank of International Settlements is working on with various CBDCs in countries like Iran, Turkey, Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia, among others. So the world is changing. I think it's very clear to all of us that's the case. And I would characterize it as an unbundling process. But where Bitcoin, to me, comes in is on the other side of that, because there's been globalization eras and there's been deglobalization eras before. You know, we had an era of 
deglobalization into the Napoleonic era. And then from the Napoleonic era and in 1815 up till World War One, it was a period of globalization. And then that devolved into deglobalization. And then after World War Two, we've had a spectacular period of globalization and prosperity and geopolitical calmness. And I think we've all can see that, that there are signs that might be coming to an end. But I think the optimistic way to end this conversation is that Bitcoin is the only thing I can think of that can help us get to that other side. Okay, so fine, we're unbundling. Sometimes you need some creative destruction. And hopefully it doesn't revolve, you know, devolve into hot wars and really bad things. But it creates some discomfortable, you know, uncomfortable changes. But I think Bitcoin is the way that we can rebundle. And so I think that would be a good topic for another day to talk about what that world might look like. Love it. Love it. I like that thread, this, that mental model of unbundling. I hope that we unbundle the state from money along with other things, but it's going to be a wild ride. Excited to have you back on maybe in a couple months to discuss, you know, your suggestion, you know, what comes next. That's, I think that's where we get really cosmic. I was hoping to egg you into talking about that a little bit here, but, you know, we just got so deep into, into the philosophy and you know, human consciousness that, you know, we're going to have to find another hour to do so. So Aaron, you definitely did not disappoint. We got extremely cosmic on this cosmic Bitcoin. Like I said, Bitcoin magazine, we do this every single Wednesday, Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. We talk with the biggest thinkers in Bitcoin. We get cosmic because Bitcoin's a cosmic thing. You got to get cosmic to think about Bitcoin, right? And we discuss the big ideas. We are brought to you by the Bitcoin Conference. Use promo code COSMIC to save 10%. Ticket prices go up this Friday. Don't miss out on the must-go-to-Bitcoin event of the year, May 18th through the 20th in Miami Beach, Florida. See y'all there. My fellow plebs. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Magazine time, y'all. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naib Bukele, Jeff Dice, Natalie Smolinski, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy from the local Barnes & Noble bookstore or from the Bitcoin magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.